0: Right there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at IntersupportRent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So... If you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire with Insport and to use the code Ski Podcast, or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 180 of the Ski Podcast, and thanks for joining us, listener. Today is going to be a special episode, all about working in ski resorts. We're going to be finding out what jobs are available, how you can find them, when to apply, what you can expect. And sadly, uh, we're going to include a detailed look at the B word, Brexit, how that's had a huge impact on seasonal work for staff and employers. Now, my name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guests today. They're all experts in this uh, topic. Uh, firstly, I'm delighted to welcome Steph Davidson, who coordinates recruitment for the tour operator Leski. Hi, Steph. How are you?
1: Hi, Ian. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for joining us. Whereabouts are you today?
1: Um, so I'm in Leeds at the moment. Um, we're just down the road from our UK office, which is based in Huddersfield. So I am working at home today, but normally I would be in the UK office and I'm very busy, you know, taking calls from applicants, reading application forms and doing interviews, which have just started recently as well.
0: OK, cool. Well, we'll come on to the the, uh, the timeline for that sort of thing. Um, we've also got with us today Jenny Greenwood, who performs the same role, I think, for uh, Ski World, the largest independent ski tour operator in the UK. Hi, Jenny. How are you going?
2: Hi, Ian. I'm really good, thank you. Really good. Yeah, I'm actually the HR manager for Ski World and I've been with them for 16 years. So, um, yeah, I've got a team that work for me doing recruitment. So I've got quite a wealth of experience in this subject. Excellent. And
0: uh, covering, uh, you know, a period of time that uh, includes lots of different changes within the industry. Uh, Whereabouts are you today, Jenny? I'm in Twickenham. Lovely area. I used to live there myself. Well, joining us from the Alps, we have Richard Lett from Apre Ski Bands and a number of other uh, businesses. His colleague Ella uh, was on the show in 178 telling us about Apre Ski Bars. And Rich was last with us back in episode 86. Hi, Rich. How are you?
3: Yeah, very well. How are you, Ian? Are you good?
0: I am very well. You are in the Alps. I said, whereabouts uh, are you? So currently sat
3: in, uh, in, well, based in uh, Meribel. Uh, we work across the Alps in in all, in, you know, in Switzerland and a little bit in Austria as well. Um, but we also run a bar restaurant in Meribel village called La Terrasse and Lodge de Village, um, which is where I'm sat this morning. Uh, just had the morning debriefing with the guys and uh, morning coffees. We haven't started on the beer yet, but uh, it's nearly midday.
0: <laughs> that, that's a relief. It's more like pasties at this time of day in France. Yeah, sometimes, isn't it?
3: nearly past eight o'clock. Um, and then, so I suppose for this podcast, I think maybe I bring a perspective from local French business, because obviously we are just a French business out here. And uh, obviously, a lot of our colleagues and friends are, are French business owners, so French employment, as well as I suppose we could talk about the uh, musicians because they're a special case in, in employment as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, we will definitely uh, tackle that uh, as well. Uh, that's great. Just tell us, uh, Rich, how's the view today? How's it look out on the mountains? It's gorgeous. It's been sunny
3: for us on and off solidly. I've been back off holiday for a couple of weeks now, so it's been, and there is some rain due later, but I can't see it yet it's gorgeous out there
0: okay excellent and finally for a full house this morning we don't normally have this many people on the uh, podcast but there's a lot to discuss here and I really wanted to have Charlie Owen on he is the uh, MD of ESPIT uh, which stands for seasonal businesses in travel it does what it says on the tin and we'll be finding out more about exactly what ESPIT is lobbying for hi Charlie thanks for joining us
4: Hi Ian, um very nice to be here. It's been I was just checking, it's been 172 episodes since the last time I wanted. So um very nice to be here, but uh, also says um uh, a lot about the longevity of um your podcast. So well done.
0: Thanks, thanks very much. Yes, I think we're going into our uh, uh sixth year. I have to look it up. Uh, now, quick question. I always like to ask my guests this and I'm um, guessing that most people are going to be saying uh, uh, something that's a few months ago. But when did you last ski or snowboard? Let's have a, a quick answer from you. Steph, uh, when and where was that?
1: Yeah, so that was in Courchevel. Um, my last ski was in April. It was actually the best skiing of the season. We got a massive dump of snow right at the end. Um, so then when we went into shutting down the chalets, I was quite jealous of all the locals who were still getting <laughs> up to the top after the lifts have shut um, but it was a really good season. Lots of fantastic skiing, and um, as I say, yeah, April was definitely a highlight. So lots of nice memories back to that.
0: Yeah, I was actually looking at the uh, webcam for Salir yesterday, and uh, yeah, there's there's enough snow if you wanted to ski tour up to uh, Salir and, uh, and and ski down that you can still do it. And there were some tracks on the on the webcam. What about yourself, uh, Jenny? When you last on snow?
2: Uh, I was mid-April. I was in Val on the Ski World end of season trip, which was a thank you to the staff. Uh, for the season and we went out the London staff went out to meet the overseas team management and we had an amazing as you say Steph amazing snow and an amazing end of season uh, get together really good fun.
0: Excellent what about what about yourself Rich you're uh, in the outs maybe it was a bit later than everyone else I don't know I know yeah. you're a very busy man you don't get on the mountain yeah. that much.
3: Well no, I, get, I get out enough <laughs> um, yeah it was in May did a little ski tour um, Round the back of Monterey and um uh, yeah down into Mirabel um, there was great snow to the towards the end of the season wasn 't there was echoing what Steph said you know April was a great month for uh, for skiing
0: and Charlie, what about yourself?
4: Uh, Similar to the others, I was enjoying the phenomenal end of snow sea conditions. Um, so the last time I was on, it was a board uh, coming down my usual last favourite run down the Salir um, mid-April. And it, it's it's one of the things that I don't, don't think is actually that well understood in the UK, that April now, and this has been the case for the last few years, has just provided the most phenomenal conditions. Um, the slopes are reasonably empty the, and, and the snow's just been great. So, yeah, part of me says um, it's pretty good to carry on To have such a good ski in April, but it'd be nice if um, more UK holidaymakers could actually appreciate it as well.
0: Sure. I mean, skiing into spring is a a campaign that uh, France Montagne has uh, run for several years and there's lots of great reasons for going out at that time of uh, year. I think people often are thinking about uh, altitude, but if you're going to somewhere like uh, the Three Valleys, where I think three of you had your uh, your last uh, uh, ski, um, particularly, you mentioned Salir, nice north-facing slope there. That's why it's still keeping that as snow so well. Uh, it can definitely be a great holiday. Uh, regular listeners will know that the Ski Podcast is sponsored by Le valais It's the largest ski area in the world. A couple of episodes ago, we had Chris Moran telling us about mountain biking uh, over there. But in a few weeks' time, the most famous bike race in the world, the Tour de France, will be passing uh, from Moutier up via uh, courcheval la Pra, La Tanya, meribu and then over the Col de la Loz, uh, which is the highest point on this year's tour, at 2,304 metres before going down into Courcheval and finishing at the Altiport. Now, our Courcheval expert, uh, Alex Irwin, from 150 Days of Winter, uh, sent us a short report on the uh, build-up to the tour's arrival. So let's have a listen to that.
5: Hi, Ian. Alex from 150 Days of Winter with a Tour de France update from Courcheval. On Wednesday, the July the 19th, stage 17 of the Tour de France finishes in Courcheval for the first time since 2005, when Alejandro Valverde was handed the win by Lance Armstrong. If you are coming to Courcheval to watch the tour, here are some tips. If you are thinking about watching from the villages, the tour only passes through the lower villages of saint Le Lepra and La before heading over to Mirabel. It then heads up the Col de la Lose where the stage finished last year Another great viewing point, but requires quite a hike to reach. Before heading down to the courcheval Altiport, the final descent is full of hairpin turns and changing aspects, which could easily catch up both cyclists and support cars. With a large screen installed at the finish at the top of the mountain runway, this is obviously one of the best places to watch the whole race, as well as the tumultuous finish. With all that in mind, it's best to find your viewing place early and be aware of road closures if you're thinking of driving on the day.
0: Uh, Rich, you mentioned that uh, you are in Mirabel Village at the moment, and the Tour de France is going to go right past your door. I'm guessing you will be watching, right? Yeah, absolutely.
3: We um, this is at La Terrasse in uh, Mirabel Village. Will be it'll be kind of a festive day. Um, the, the tour goes right by us on the on the road there that links Latanya to to Mirabel and then it goes up through Meribel, winding its way up past the, uh, the wrong point, if people know that. And then they're onto this um, amazing uh, track that they've built up there for road cycling, which is closed to cars normally. I mean, obviously, the, the whole Tour de France is closed to cars anyway. But for us, uh, amateur cyclists, is just such an amazing um, track that they've built, you know, a, a tarmac road, basically. snakes its way all the way up to the uh, Col de Loz. And so the Col de la Loz is one of the peaks that joins Mirabel to Courcheval. and then uh, so the Tour de France will be following that. They'll they don't finish at the top; they finish down at the Altipour in Courcheval. So there's going to be a quite a, for those who know this road that they've built it's quite hairy. There's very very tight hairpins. It's very steep, and it's quite a technical descent. So it'll be quite the thing to watch live, I should imagine, as well as on telly. But yeah, then they finish in the Courcheval, um and, and so, Mirabel isn't really doing anything for the Tour de France because technically the stage finish is Cheval, but it's, you know, most of it is on the Mirabel side.
0: And what about yourself? Uh, you know, it's going to come right past uh, the Loge du Village. Will you uh, have put on anything special for it? Yeah,
3: we'll have live music all day and barbecues and, you know, that sort of party atmosphere with a big screen and. And people in camper vans will, you know, will probably be coming up and, and using this as a place to stay. So there'll be quite a lot of people here. But once the um, once midday comes, all the roads will be closed. So where, you, you know, people will be picking their zone and sticking to it. And from here, you can walk up to to the track and um, and see see them going past. You can see them going past the front door here or, or, or further up on the hill if you want to watch, you know, watch it on the mountain, you know.
0: Yeah, and I know you're a keen cyclist, uh, Rich. In fact, very kindly, you've lent me your bike before for an event I did uh, <laughs> yeah. out in the Alps. Have you cycled up Col yourself?
3: Oh yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. It's so difficult. It's so tough. The Meribel side is particularly tough. Um, so you normally warm up in a in a cycling season with a with a trip up the Courchevel side first. You get that one under your belt, and then um, and the first the first time I did it, I could. You know, I literally couldn't do it without putting my, my foot down and, and you know, because I thought my heart was going to come out of my, my head, you know, <laughs> it's just there's parts where you just cannot rest. And if you're, you know, these guys just float up it, the, the pro cyclists. But for an amateur cyclist, it is uh, is literally challenge one is getting up it without having to put your foot down. That is literally is that difficult.
0: Yeah, well, okay, well, it's certainly going to be a a day to watch. I'm pretty sure it's uh, July the 19th that it's coming through, Stage 17 of the Tour de France. So stick that one uh, in your diaries. Uh, Hopefully I won't get in trouble for that segment about cycling because someone did actually complain we had mountain biking in episode 178. And we're the ski podcast. I'm not apologising for that. We all love skiing, but the mountains for me at any time of year are a joy. And in summer, uh, cycling is hugely popular. As is trail running, Uh, regular listeners will know I like my trail running. I'm going to be in Zermatt in August uh, for a race they've got over there. And last weekend, I was actually taking part in a triathlon uh, down in Nice. Uh, And I might be risking more complaints now (laughs) because this is like a non-ski or even mountain activity, although we did cycle up into the Prey Alps but I'm mentioning this purely because I traveled there and back by train uh, and I went on the overnight service from Paris to to Nice on the way out there. Uh, Regular listeners will know um, about the lobby group I founded uh, Ski Flight Free and uh, although this wasn't to a ski resort if you'd like to know more about my overnight train experience you can have a look at skiflightfree.org to find out more about that. Right we're going to move on to the main subject of the day now which is uh, ski jobs and uh, finding work in ski resorts. And Charlie, I'd like to start with you. We might as well uh, address, I don't think it's the elephant in the room, because, uh, you know, everybody knows that Brexit has made huge changes uh, to, to Britain, but specifically uh, in terms of freedom of movement. So, Charlie, I wondered if you could tell us firstly uh, a little bit about ESPIT, uh, what ESPIT is and, um, you know, when it started and why you started it. Uh,
4: sure. Um Look, uh, just just before I kick on that, uh, just go back. Thank you again for inviting me on. But but thank you for everything you do for the industry, particularly on the climate emergency, um, and looking at um, flight-free skiing. I think it is going to be incredibly important. Um, and look, I, I've talked before about how the lack of mobility is really challenging for the entire industry but that pales in comparison to the existential crisis uh, that the climate emergency brings so look thank you for everything you do on that and please keep doing it um but look back back to the question and espit and a little bit about how we started um i i think the seeds of it um started on the uh night of the referendum um where i stayed up all night um uh, not ashamed to say drank a bit cried a bit. Um, (laughs) When I'd kind of got over the hangover and kind of brushed the tears away, realized that um, the potential for the loss of freedom of movement and basically labor mobility between the UK and the EU was going to provide probably the most significant challenge that the industry had faced up until that point. Um, And I kind of kicked myself that actually Myself personally, and the industry wider, hadn't done more in the lead up to the referendum about trying to explain what some of those impacts would be. So espit was set up for two reasons. Um, A, to raise awareness of the potential impacts of the, last, uh, the loss of mobility on the UK ski industry. And to lobby both French and, well, sorry, European and UK governments to actually allow mobility to continue in the travel industry, um, to la- allow all of us to, and the industry to carry on doing what we do um, and providing phenomenal value holidays to British um, holidaymakers, whether it's skiing holidays or summer holidays.
0: Yeah, cool. So that that makes a, a lot of sense, and uh, you know, I particularly wanted to have you on the show. I know we had you on the show as long as ago. Uh, you mentioned it; it was January twenty eighteen. I looked it up, episode eight of the podcast, which does mean that we started in September twenty seventeen. But recently, you produced a, uh, a an excellent, fascinating uh, report, sadly full of. Uh, what you have to consider to be uh, negative news, really, in conjunction with uh, ABTA, which just shows the impact that Brexit has had on the, uh, on the industry in terms of seasonal work uh, already. Um, a reduced number of jobs available, reduced number of young people working and leading to the reduced number of chalets. I wondered if you'd like to elaborate on that, you know, how you teamed up with ABTA, why you decided to release this uh, now and, and some of the contents of that.
4: Uh, yes. So, so actually, this is the fourth report that SBIT has released on this subject. Um, kind of see the first three. In 2017, we released a report that said the industry was at risk of losing large amounts of jobs and decreasing in size. 2018, we said we're still at risk of exactly the same thing unless a mobility deal is done. 2019, we said exactly the same thing again. Um, and then COVID hit. And obviously, we all had individual challenges, but the industry faced a phenomenal, as a whole, faced a phenomenal challenge. Um, Hopefully, now COVID is behind us. And we thought it was time to go back and say, look, what happened to all the predictions that we made in the previous three reports? And then we were, we, I've been working very closely with ABTA, who obviously have been um, also calling out the dangers of the lack of uh, mobility chapter in the EU UK um, um, uh, trade agreements. Um, and so we decided to partner together to resurvey the industry to find out what the situation actually was. And as you say, unfortunately, um, The three reports that we said, look, this is going to be really, really bad, was then confirmed by the report that we just released, which basically said, yes, it's really bad. So some of the headlines. Um, There's been a 69% drop in UK workers in the EU from 2017 to now. And we were already seeing a drop in 2017 because the result of the referendum, many people in the industry saw the risk. So we'd already seen a bit of a drop. So it dropped for, it's now under 4,000 UK workers that are working in the EU in the travel industry. Um, 64, and the, the survey, it was quite wide. We had over 120 respondents, of which over 100 were CEOs or MDs in the travel industry. Um, so it's a fairly significant number. Sixty-four percent of all respondents said the cost per employee has increased more than thirty percent since twenty seventeen. There's been a fifty-six percent reduction in catered chalets across the whole of Europe, um, and in some countries it's quite extreme. For instance, in um, Austria, there is th- th- there is virtually no uh, UK travel industry presence um, because the it is incredibly complex um, and there's a quota system for allowing UK workers to work. So, yeah. And then finally, the last stat, 78% of all MDs and CEOs say Brexit will have a more long-term significant impact than even COVID. Um, uh, only 10% thought COVID was was more significant.
0: Yeah, I mean, I find all of that really interesting. Firstly, you know, you started off thanking me for the kind of uh, lobbying I'm doing on, on climate change. And in some respects, the way that you've been um, producing your reports is kind of a bit similar to the IPCC. It's kind of saying, hey, look, there's a risk. Hey, look, there's still a risk. Hey, look, there's a risk and it's getting better, you know, bigger if we don't do anything about it. And now we've got this situation, unfortunately. Where, I mean, that is such a huge uh, a decrease in the number of people working in ski resorts. And I'm guessing probably everyone on the panel uh, today, on the podcast today, is in the same situation as me. Because I've been working in the ski industry for a long time. I often get contacted by people who are saying, oh, you know, my son, my friend, etc., wants to get a ski job. How do they go about it? And my first question to them these days is, well, you know, have you got an EU passport? Because what you're saying there, the number of uh, you know the number of jobs overall has gone down, but isn't that another uh, factor as well? I think I saw that in your report. The number of non-British passport holders employed by uh, British companies has gone up.
4: Um, yeah, that's definitely definitely been the case. And we again we were talking about this, and we predicted this would happen um, because that it is very complex and quite expensive to actually employ UK um, staff in some countries then um, the natural response is to look to employ some more EU passport holders. So particularly um, uh, people from Ireland um, have, I think have been under quite high demand. Now, fortunately, SBIT has worked incredibly closely with the French authorities. Um, we've been doing this since 2017. Uh, we managed to raise awareness of the um, success of the UK ski industry and how beneficial it was to the local French economies. And through that close collaboration, not only has SBIT been recognised by the French government as uh, the official voice of the UK ski industry in France, but we've managed to work with them to provide a route to employ UK staff, um however it is um still there is quite a bit of bureaucracy and it does quite cost a bit more. Um however there is a route. Without that, then even the three thousand seven hundred UK worker number would be significantly less.
0: Okay. Well, we will come on to uh that route uh later. And I also later on the podcast want to ask you about some of the lobbying that you're doing, because I know you're lobbying on a very high level. But let's Let's try and be a little uh, positive about it. There are still jobs available uh, in resorts, maybe less than in the halcyon days of of, uh, chalet companies and and ski jobs. I'd like to bring in uh, Steph and and Jenny uh, at this point. I wondered if we could start off. Steph, you work for uh, Le Ski. You're a specialist at a chalet company. know that uh, I work uh, with Le Ski quite closely, and uh, I know that you've really focused on just maintaining those chalets, you know, there are a lot of hoops that you have to uh, go through, but you've uh, made that happen. So can I just start off then by asking what kind of jobs are still available for people to apply for? What kind of jobs are on offer?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's probably helpful if I start by telling you a little bit more about the ski. Um, so as you said, we're a chalet company. Um, we run catered chalet holidays in France. Um, so those are in three resorts that we have, um Coulchevel and La Tania which are in the Three Valleys, and then Val d'Isère as well. So we're very lucky, actually, that we've managed to maintain our program um, of 31 charities. Nothing has changed for us since COVID and Brexit. Obviously, there's been a lot of hard work to maintain that. And um, we've got excellent relationships with our you know, property owner suppliers, everything like that, and our staff. Um, so we've managed to maintain our program, which is great so that we can carry on providing those jobs and opportunities for people. Um, So we actually um, employ over 70 overseas staff every year. Um, Most of those staff are chalet hosts. So I can explain to you a little bit about what that job involves. Um, It's uh, quite a varied position. So um, we would assign a chalet host to a property. They'd look after it and make it home from home for guests for the week. So doing everything, cooking, so cook breakfast, afternoon tea, canapes in the evening and a three course evening meal as well housekeeping aspects for the role as well. Um, slightly less glamorous side, people like to talk about the cooking a lot, but they forget there's a lot of hard work behind the scenes as well. So doing the bits of housekeeping um, and then of course entertaining the guests um, during the dinner party atmosphere in the evening. It's a really lovely atmosphere and the, guests make, um, the staff make it really special and memorable for the guests in that respect. We've also got resort managers. So we have chalet managers. They tend to be somebody who's progressed um, from being a chalet host. So we do retain quite a lot of our staff, which is great, um, and come on to be managers. That's, you know, for skills in terms of staff coming back home after doing a season, it's really great to have that managerial experience. Um, And I've sort of gone through that system myself as well into a full-time job too. Um, But these chalet managers in resort, they are overseeing all of the operations for the chalets so again a lot of behind the scenes things ordering food checking the standards in the chalets making the roads for the staff managing their hours and things like that and so that's the chalet side of things we also have guest service managers and that was my area so that's where I've come from. Um, Can I
0: just ask is that a modern term for what I understood to be a rep? A guest services
1: manager, uh, possibly, <laughs> yes, I suppose so. I mean, our company is a little bit different. We, a lot of um companies sort of run entertainment and things like that. Our guest service managers are more sort of there to advise guests. So, I'd often, when I did it, go into the chalets in the morning, chat to the guests, see where they're going. Can I book any restaurants for them, give any recommendations, um, things like that? That's the glamorous side to the role. There's there was an element of um. You know, if something goes wrong, that was me who would step in or the guest service managers yeah. who do it now. So injuries, as you know, skiing is a little bit of a high risk sport. So if anything goes wrong on the mountain, the guest service managers are there to help out in those situations. And um, so we have those sorts of roles as well. Like I say, those positions tend to be somebody who's got a bit of experience before, perhaps worked for a previous season and progressed into those roles. Um, and then we have a couple of positions which are sort of behind the scenes. I think when you go on holiday, you don't even realise that these things are going on. Um, that's the way we like it. it means that it's running smoothly, um, that we have sort of maintenance positions, um, looking after things in the chalets if anything sort of isn't working, anything from a light bulb to a boiler or anything like that. That's what the maintenance would look after. Um, resort support, we have that position. Um, they deliver all of the food from shopping, um, the wine, keeping those things topped up in the chalets, so that the service is really smooth for the guests. So like I say, those behind the scenes positions, which are so important to our operations, but from a guest perspective, you hope that those things wouldn't even sort of be noticed in a way. Um, and of course, some admin positions and things like that as well. So quite a variety. Cool.
0: Okay, that that's a uh, great, Steph. Jenny, can I ask you a similar question? Uh, you know, uh, I know Ski World, larger company, lots of uh, uh, chalets as well. Uh, how many staff do you employ, and is it similar roles? Are there any other roles in addition to
2: that? Um, we are double double the amount of staff we're probably um well last year we were 160 staff and we're looking to grow this year so we're still working on the numbers for this coming season um but yeah our program is quite a bit bigger and quite a few more chalets. with regards to actual roles i think steph's covered the majority of the roles we do have more sort of a year-round support um because we're putting the program together focusing on training so we do have some year-round Uh, positions that are actually based overseas as well Um, and things like area managers that oversee the resort managers so there is a a sort of a slightly larger structure there for us. And so
0: leading on to you know we discussed what type of roles are available when would you say is the best time to start applying say someone's listening to this podcast now and they're thinking right okay that sounds interesting I've probably got the, uh, the the skills for that so the winter doesn't start until uh, December. So when would you recommend, Jenny, that people should be uh, putting in their applications?
2: As soon as possible. We open up our recruitment from June. Our first port call is to speak to the returning staff. And we usually have about 35% of the staff wanting to come back year on year, which is great considering people sometimes look at that as a gap, a gap year um but i we because of the visa process and the permit process um the sooner we can get that underway the better so i would definitely say start applying as soon as the jobs go onto the website which is usually june after we've placed the returners in may
0: right okay that makes sense and and steph can i come back to you similar similar timings would you say
2: Absolutely, yeah. So um,
1: myself, Alex and Zoe, we're the full-time team for Liskie. Um We actually are based out in France during the winter and we get back sort of the very beginning of May. So we do have a little bit of a break before we delve straight into the next season. But as same for Jenny, we start reopening the recruitment process beginning of June um, and we do want those applications in as soon as possible so we can get all the paperwork sorted.
0: And and what is that timeline then? If you're encouraging people to start applying, let's say, uh, in June, you end up getting like a big pile of application. You know, what's going to help someone's application to get them to the top of that list and get them presumably to an interview? That's the next stage, is it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So basically with Lusky, I read all of the applications and there are a lot of applications, very competitive. And um, over the summer, we get over a thousand. And um, so basically when I'm going through the applications, I'm looking for specific job roles. Have they got the relevant skills? Um, as I mentioned, most of our positions are chalet host roles. And um, for somebody in that, I'm looking, you know, the cooking aspect is a big part of it. So have they potentially done a shallow cookery course? Um, those are provided from various different schools. Things like that really boost an application. Also, any relevant experience? Um, have they done hospitality roles before? Things like that. And also bearing in mind that we are taking applications in June. I'm very happy to sort of, if somebody has said, I've got a job lined up and during the summer I'll be working full time or I'm seeking relevant um you know, experience in hospitality that would be really good to know that they will be ready to go for the start of the season with that experience.
0: Cool that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense that's great I'm going to come back to you Jenny if that's okay I wondered when do you start interviewing people then if you've got applications coming in in June you know when does that process start and is that regional or do people all come to your offices?
2: As soon as the applicants come in, we start to process them. Our first port of call is we we call them, we have a chat with them. usually takes about 20 to 30 minutes just to get a really good flavour of their background and talk through their CV. And then we then invite them to interview. That's either could be face-to-face, some tour operators do face-to-face. We are this summer doing face-to-face. Now COVID's calmed down slightly. And we also offer Zoom or on teams if people are in different parts of the the country, or in different uh, countries themselves. Um, And then after, as soon as we've done the interview, within a week they'll know whether they've got the position. But just wanted to add to what Steph had mentioned there about the number of applicants. And we have over five, well, we had this last season um, just over 5,000 applications. And I just want to put a bit of context with the number of roles that we have. That only equates to being able to offer out 3.4% of those applicants with a position. And if you take out then returners out of that who are coming back, you're looking at 2.7%. So just to emphasise what Steph said about, you know, the experience, what's on your CV, the recruitment process, it's so important that they really sell themselves and do the research into the business because when you're faced with five thousand cvs what's going to (laughs) stand out when you know that you can potentially only recruit 3.4 percent of those maximum
0: yeah well that is definitely a a valid point and if it hadn't underlined uh, before how important an application is when you're uh, uh, completing it 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 does now Uh, steph in relation to your interviews I, i think i'm right in saying that you have like a regional aspect to that is that right?
1: Um, not so much anymore. Things did change since COVID, really. So um, like Jenny said, you'll sort of move back to face-to-face. Um, we've changed our recruitment a little bit since COVID. So I conduct a first stage interview, which is over Zoom, and then our second stage interview is over Zoom as well. Um, We're a, quite a small family-run company in Huddersfield. Um quite out the way of a lot of people we found a lot of people are traveling and things as well so we've tried to make it convenient and it does work for as well over zoom quite a few people that i've spoken to recently who have been applying for jobs at various companies have asked me oh do you do an assessment day um i'm not too sure which companies still operate those but some companies larger companies will ask people to go to um you know a center for a day and do sort of various um sort of activities I suppose or interview stages I'm not too sure how they work but for ourselves it's just one one one-to-one
0: Right. OK. And, um, you know, if you're offering people a job, you know, say you've uh, you've interviewed them, you've narrowed them down, you've interviewed them and you have decided, right, this is the right person for me. Uh, you know, Steph, for yourself, you're, you you know, you've got three resorts uh, to offer. Jenny's got a significantly, significantly more. But question to both of you, really, to start with Steph, you know, at what point do, do you actually specify what resort people are going to be working in?
1: Um, we obviously take into account people's preferences i think people do come in with um in mind where they'd like to be um, a lot of people have looked at our chalets that we offer as well and have sort of said i like the look of this one and um, we absolutely take into account people's preferences However, we, myself, Alex and Zoe, who have worked for the ski for a number of years, sort of around 20 seasons between us, know every property inside out. And we know what kind of skills that we need for certain chalets, how much experience for different ones. Um, you know, they range in size. So how capable is that candidate and will they suit that property?
0: Cool. And what about yourself, Jenny? Uh, you know, you're offering uh, employment in a lot of different resorts in several yeah. countries. I'm sure people have their preferences, but uh, do you actually tell them where they're going to be working when you make them an offer?
2: Yeah, I mean we've got ten resorts, and so yeah, we we know our product extremely well, and we try and go out and see as much of the property as we can. Um, for us, I tend to the way I train my team to do it is is listening to what the, the start uh, the applicant actually wants, but actually sometimes the, we. We know probably what's going to suit them better when we're building communities and putting people together that are going to live together, work together, play together. It's really important that we get to know that individual and therefore also finding out what type of skiing they like, off-piste, park, and then sort of tailoring the resort to the person. But they know the resort they're going to go to before they go in the area? Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I uh, love this conversation because, you know, like uh, uh, probably a lot of our listeners and uh, certainly everyone on the panel, you know, I did a bunch of seasons uh, myself. And you're saying what type of skiing do you like? Well, the type of skiing you like before you go to do your first season can be completely different from what it is by the time you've uh, you finished that season. But it's certainly true that um, the community uh, out in resort is incredibly uh, important uh, to you when you're working a season. But those jobs, they don't actually start. I'm going to say December is when ski resorts open. But, uh, Steph, when would you actually send... Uh, your staff out to resort. I presume there's a training week to start off with, is that?
1: Exactly, yes. So um, again, this is since COVID actually, but we've started doing our manager training in the UK. So we do that middle of November. That works really well for us and it's something we've kept since covid um, and then after that, we go out to resort and um, it varies on resort. So Val Air starts a little bit earlier. So that's the very end of November. And then the Three Valleys we start It's usually the first week of December we head out there.
2: So we sort of stagger our training.
0: Cool. And Jenny, similar timings uh, for Ski World?
2: Yeah, it's mid-November. We, but we, st- we do online training prior to them going out. They get videos that they can watch. It takes away all that theory and they can keep revisiting it before they go out, get that confidence. And then training is actually more the practical in resorts. So management usually go out first about two weeks training uh, from mid-November and then the staff go out from then onwards for about, go straight to resort to train.
0: Excellent. It's very exciting. I bet there's someone listening right now who's, uh, who's getting excited about doing a potential uh, ski season. Well, I've got some more questions for you, Steph and uh, Jenny, a bit later on. Uh, but thank you very much for that contribution just now. I'd just like to move on to, uh, to Rich and Charlie now, then, to have a little discussion about bar jobs, because um, I know this is a, a specialist area for you. Regular listeners might know that I founded a business called Natives, and we actually specialised in recruitment for ski resorts. Uh, and for british ski companies and um, for 12 winters uh, before i left the company we helped uh, uh, all sorts of people find jobs and what never changed across every single one of those seasons is that the most common application was from an 18 year old boy who said i want to work in a bar <laughs> in a ski resort <laughs> and like uh, just uh, there aren't so many of those uh, jobs but charlie um, you know you manage a, a few bars in the Alps I, I believe you know what's the situation now can you know are you recruiting British bar staff to work in those
4: uh yes so i I obviously have a couple of hats. Um, so I'll take the SPIT hat off and put my European pubs hat on as the MD of European pubs. Um, so we manage Jack's in Maribel. Uh, we operate the Grand Jets Hotel also in Maribel and the Capenias both in Maribel and Corcheval. And we'll be opening a new Jack's in Lehman Weir this coming season, which we're very excited about, which will provide more job opportunities. So at European Pubs, we employ both UK staff and EU passport holders and encourage applications for experienced hospitality staff in the UK. Um, and obviously, this is one of my two roles of SBIT and European Pubs actually really comes into its own and benefits our employees, because we've got a very good idea of how to navigate the new legal landscape uh, that you need to get the right work permits and visas, which is critical to make sure that the staff are employed legally and that they aren't running risks, um, with, with their own, um, so staff, um, with their own ability to travel in the future. Um, so, we've probably got about 60 to 70 um, uh, vacancies that we need to recruit um, to fill this year. Recruitment is in full swing already. So, if you want an experience that literally will change your life, um, <laughs> and I know that um, I think everybody on this podcast has done winter seasons and um, we'll know um, the life-changing experience it is, um, then get applying at europeanpubs.com. Go and have a look at what we do and get your applications <laughs> in. Yeah there's, yeah, yeah, there's
0: pros and cons of, uh, of working in a, a bar for sure. I think the uh, the hours are much more suitable for uh, for skiing and getting on the mountain because often you're working in the evening, but uh, you know then you're behind the bar. We get to meet everyone as well. Uh, Rich, you're sitting in a bar in the Alps uh, at the moment and you recruit for... Uh, uh, Lodge de Vlage, uh, I believe. I think you are more focused on employing people with EU passports uh, now. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, Charlie's company, you know, they, they've, they've got to employ
3: more people. So the, we, we um, out of the 25 or so staff last year, we, we only had one member of staff on a, on a UK visa, and that's someone that's worked for us for a number of years, and she missed the boat getting settled status because she was on a boat in the <laughs> working on a yacht at the time um so she didn't get her carte de séjour or settled status in, in the you know in uk terms um so she missed that so she's someone we valued and we you know so we went through the visa process for her fairly straightforward you know there's there's the, the french visa website it's very well set up for it you click on it and it's all in english she's got to follow the process and um and then we we do recruit people locally french people english kids that have been born to um you know born out here we've got a couple of them on the team that are you know 18 19 years of age and and so have that you know have great english and great french as well you know so in all um with what with carte de séjour holders and um eu passport holders yeah it was 99 percent of our
0: workforce can I ask you another question? Uh, like Charlie you wear a lot of hats. Uh uh Apre ski bands is one of your businesses. Uh you mentioned that there's a situation in terms of acts coming over who are going to be performing in different bars uh, around the Alps. How does how does that work for them in terms of employment?
3: Yeah, so if there's any uh budding musicians out there want to uh sign up uh, with us, there it, it is different for um musicians and sports people. So um those are careers where you expect people to go to other countries to do what they do. Um, so musicians do get a certain amount of time without needing any kind of visa whatsoever. So there's, there's a few administrative hoops to jump through. And you also need to show a contract which has your uh, future dates in terms of uh, you know music gigs and income. Uh, to prove that you have the 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 money coming in during that tour so you don't need a visa up to 90 days and then post 90 days you have to get a visa but even then the visa is a lot simpler than a a bar person's visa that it's it's called a talent passport and beyond 90 days it's a simple application and i mean touch wood, up until uh last season Everybody that went for their visa interview got a visa within a couple of weeks and the process was much, much simpler.
0: OK, excellent. So that's good news. So that if you're an acting contact, Rich, if you want to uh, be working out in the Alps this winter, and it's still possible. Um, I'd like to just come back to Jenny and Steph, if I could, just to touch on um, you know EU passport holders. The uh, SBIT survey showed that there's a lot more EU passport holders being employed Steph are you actively seeking out EU passport holders or is that something that when you see all those application forms come in those thousand application forms you're like putting them into different piles if you see someone who's got that passport already?
1: Um, interestingly not so much so our priority is just getting the right candidates for the job and um, as I've sort of explained we know specifically what we need for each chalet each resort, what works well and um, so when I'm going through each application I'm just judging people's suitability for it really. Um, obviously we've explained the benefits for having the EU passports, but there is a way to get you know UK and British passport holders out to France with visas. Um, so we've sort of been doing that. It's definitely a bonus if they do have it, it bypasses the admin and the costs. Um, but my priority is finding the right person for the job.
0: Okay, and Jenny, what about yourself? Uh, um, You know, Charlie mentioned it's been uh, uh, Brexit, has been a bonus for uh, Irish uh, people. Are you employing more Irish or other uh, EU citizens?
2: Um, Again, with Steph, this is totally about it's candidate specific. We want to get the right person in the right role. Just to give an an example from Skiwell's perspective, um, in 21-22, we employed 38% EU passport holders. But for the amazing work that ESPIT have been doing over these last two years, for 22-23, it dropped down to 28% for EU passport holders. We, because we can put people through the process, it's, not, it, it's really about getting the right person for the right role. And I want to make sure that we deliver excellent service and that outweighs the admin costs in my mind.
0: OK, let's tackle that, because that was also in the SBIT report. And you're talking about the, the cost. There's a, a literal cost in terms of uh, a, a financial costs, but also a cost in uh, time as well. Steph, do you want to talk us through how it works in terms of getting a visa for staff?
1: Absolutely, I can do. Um, so obviously we just employ people in France, so I can only speak from that perspective. Um, but yeah, lots of steps to sort of follow. Um, yeah, Charles, thanks. everything I've done because honestly, it's it is a long and complicated process, and I'm not sure that we would have known where to start with it, but it is it is possible we have got our heads around it um, and done it successfully for a couple of years now so that's great um but the first step is that you do have to advertise the jobs as i say um on to the pollen park which is the um french job site so you open applications and it's three weeks that those um jobs have to be posted for you interview applicants if they apply and you know if somebody applies and they're great for the role that's fantastic. We'll sort of consider that application alongside all of the others that we receive as well. Um, But if not, we sort of go down the route of then um, opening the jobs up to, um, you know, our UK market, which is where we get most of our staff from.
0: So to clarify, then, you've posted the job to make it available to French people in this instance in France to apply. And then you have to wait a certain period of time before you're allowed to consider non-EU citizens. Uh, Charlie, do you want to
4: elaborate on that at all? Uh, yes. So it's it's a local worker test um, and it's fairly standard for uh non-eu countries that um if you're trying to be which of course the uk is now getting workers to work over there um but what will commonly happen and this is something that um and thanks very much to Seth and jenny for for kind of calling out what sbit's been doing uh we run regular workshops for the entire industry to help uh or for sbit members to help navigate the legal landscape so um, uh, three, four weeks on the French unemployment side, but that's normally done in May, June time, kind of before the actual recruitment process starts in the UK. So it's a little bit of a lapse time. Fortunately, there's no cost associated with it, but there is a little bit of admin. We work very closely with the French authorities. And ESPIT in, 20, I think it's 2018, we um, posted 7,000 chalet job advertisements on the Pôle Emploi. And we guaranteed to the French authorities that we we would employ anybody that successfully applied that met the criteria, right criteria through companies. Um, we got three applications, two of which was spam, and one of which didn't speak English, so didn't pass the, the test. And it was kind of through that that the French authorities saw that actually um, they're, they're, for many, many reasons, um, there wasn't the availability in France of people to do the roles in particularly in the chalet roles that the industry needed and we are talking with the French authorities um, to see if there's any way that actually chalet jobs can be um, identified as something's called métier en tension in short supply so that we can actually avoid actually having to put the roles onto the pole emploi. that said um and I know there are lots of companies that actually do get some applications now through the French unemployment type and are actively looking to employ French citizens and I'd really, really encourage it as well, but there aren't the level of jobs, which is why we've seen the amount of roles in the entire industry decrease so um so radically
0: yeah for sure thanks for that uh charlie uh, steph i've got another question for you then so you've gone through all of this process then you're applying for uh, visas you've you've made an offer to let's say british staff and you're going through this process you want the right people you've applied for a work permit you apply for a work visa uh, and then there has there's some validation process when that individual arrives in france as well is that how that works
1: Absolutely. So just back to what you said about the work permit and the visa there. Um, I think it's important to point out because some people do call us and say they want to start, um, get ahead with the process and get the visa themselves. It's not something that people can just do on their own. The work permit specifically is it's very it's specific to the employee and the employer. So it's something that we as a company apply for and um, for the staff. After that, they go to a visa appointment. Um, The first appointment is in the UK. So there are offices in London, Manchester and Edinburgh, and that's through TLS. Um, And we try to make the process as smooth as possible for the staff, so helping with the paperwork that they need. And like I say, we've got the work permit granted and things like that. Um, But the staff do have to go along to that appointment in person, and there's a cost involved there. And I'll just pass it over to Charles if that's okay as well.
4: I'd uh, just like to add something on the work permit process because this was the one that we were um, really concerned about. And thankfully, with our close relationship with the French government, ESPIT um, managed to get a guarantee that they would uh, issue work permits to UK staff working in tourism. Can, can I just clarify,
0: though, Charlie, when uh, they've got a working visa? They're out in the Alps. There's still a process that happens when they're in the Alps as well. Correct.
4: This is where it gets a little bit complicated because it depends which route and which particular visa that you get. However, for the majority of UK seasonal staff, uh, the company will apply for a work permit for them. They will then apply for a work visa to enter France on a um, temporary season um, uh, visa. And then they have to get that visa validated in France. And this is where the costs and the time start to add up. First of all, the company needs to pay about or well, 50 euros a the month they're working. So 250 or 300 euros to be in France. They then need to uh, go down and apply in the um, local prefecture for what's called a uh, pluriannual cartes de which will allow that worker to come back and work for the next three years, six months in each year. They then need to actually get an OFI medical certificate, which requires a, a chest x-ray um, and then a, an in-person interview with OFI. So in total, this requires um, three trips out of resort to the local prefecture or the OFI offices um, to apply, get medical and pick up your carte as séjour.
0: Right. Okay, that is a pretty full-on uh, process. Jenny, can I uh, ask you a question? Yeah, you know, Charlie mentioned there are some uh, costs attached to that, uh, and obviously, as an admin uh, cost uh, attached to that as well. But this is France that we're talking about, where in general. You know, there has been this system that has been created thanks to the work of uh, SBIT, where it is possible, uh, although uh, time consuming, to employ British people to work in France. But you employ staff in Austria as well. And uh, it's a lot more complicated or challenging in Austria, I believe.
2: Yeah, the system actually works very much the same as France. We still have to go through advertising roles. You still have to go through uh, permits, visas. As Charlie mentioned at the very beginning with Austria, the challenge comes from the qu- the quota of permits that they'll issue. And where by France, there isn't the quota in the hospitality industry um, in Austria, there is. And it's very, very limited. And that's to all non-EU. So that would include Australians, Kiwis, Canadians, it's South Africans. So everyone is trying to go for these small numbers of um, permits that they issue and that's where the challenge comes and the process it actually takes a lot longer than it does in france you can take up to three months so we've made ski world have made the commercial decision that for the positions we have in austria we do employ eu staff purely because that three months isn't practical when you've got if there's an injury or something like that we can't we can't go through that process
0: Yeah, I mean, that is really interesting because I also spoke to Andy Butterworth from Kalumaski, who's regularly contributed to the podcast and is based out in St. Anton. And he told me that they employ around 30 staff in St. Anton and they're all on EU passports. And he talked about the challenges of this uh, quota system and how it's changing. There might be a certain number in, in, in December and then it changes in January, et cetera. So those logistical challenges are still there in, in those respects. Um, Jenny, can I also ask you a quick question about uh, about packages? You know, When I did a ski season a very long time ago, uh, I don't think rules were followed uh, uh, quite in the same way that they are these days. So staff just got their accommodation, their lift pass and a nominal amount of money. But for quite a few years now... <laughs> Um, the system has been pretty different uh, from that. So what can someone who's going out to work a season, for example, in a chalet or a rep, what can they expect to be paid within their package?
2: The, dip, the main difference in the package and how people work is that they used to be paid on the UK system, so they would pay tax and national insurance in the UK. And now they're on the, if they're in front, working in France, they're on the French system on a French contract, and they 're being paid the the wage in France, plus they pay obviously the tax and their social charges in France. but the actual salary aspect of it is such a small part of the actual package i mean that 's the rem- rem- remuneration, but obviously there's huge amounts of benefit for staff to actually work a ski season, and it comes through things like as Charlie mentioned that they put together this report and 49% of management, senior management, talked about their career and that they've done ski seasons and how it it started their career. So there's so many different factors. And kind of obviously promotion, they're learning management skills. They're learning all these other elements. And it's, it's life-changing. Some of the skills that they learn, they learn how to sell, they learn how to budget, they're learning accounting. It's huge life experiences. And they get ongoing coaching throughout.
0: Yeah, well, you don't have to sell it to me as someone who, you know, first did a ski season and has run a few businesses uh, since then. But I know, you know, when I go to some of the, the networking industry, networking events, pretty much everyone there who's in a senior role with uh, ski companies has done a season, you know, at some point that has been part of it. And you learn on the front line, uh, you know, what's uh, required and about the product and about the uh, customer, et cetera. Steph, I've got one more question for you about the kind of package. Some of my friends who've done uh, seasons, you know, back in the day with me several decades ago have have been saying to me, I hear that season workers these days only have to work a 35 hour week. Uh, Is that, (laughs) that (laughs) happened?
1: Um, so, yeah, contractually, 35 hours. Um, within the sort of employment law, you can do bits of overtime, which is paid. Um, and we do try and monitor and give sort of time off to compensate if they've gone over as well. So you can have sort of modulated contracts. That's something that you can do. And um, it does also require a lot more sort of planning. So some companies have a rotor system so that it doesn't affect the guests as much. So perhaps they'll have staff covering when um, the days off are for staff and things like that. Um, Lusky, we've taken the sort of decision because of the way that we operate and we've got 31 chalets. Um, It doesn't work for us to have that rotor system. We'd have to, the financial implications of getting the staff to cover that would be far too great. So all of our staff have two days off during the week. All at the same time, um, and the guests use that as an opportunity to travel to the local restaurants, which actually seems to go down really well. Anyway,
0: I always think this is such a you know a, a difficult ruling to put into practice because anyone who's done or uh, worked in the industry within chalets would understand that early on, it takes much longer to do a job because you're learning how to do it but once you get into a system and you know uh, how to go about it later on it won't take you as long uh, you're more efficient but uh, you know unfortunately we have to work our way around these uh, admin things so that's that's very uh, interesting rich
3: yeah i mean that's a that's a phenomenon in, in bars as well you know you, we you just do rolling uh hour sheets so that you as the season goes on the staff members recuperate overtime with extra days off on them you know and when they all know their you know they know their roles and they're working efficiently it's great to give them an extra day off so they can go skiing you know
0: <laughs> excellent
2: yeah I just want to mention with the package obviously there's an implication to the company to do visas and permits can I just really literate everybody that when they're applying for positions that they check that the company is actually doing the correct visa and permit process because if they don't the repercussions on that individual it could be a, a long term effect within europe so please please research the company that you're about to work for that's my that's my advice for any applicant who's going to do a season
0: yeah well i mean i've certainly in the seasons uh, that i did people you know did get deported uh, for various reasons every now and then you know controls uh, happen and people would have to leave and we're aware that you know there's some employers who are not necessarily uh, you know, doing it the right way, uh, Charlie. I'd just like to come on to you because we, you know, we, there's a lot of topics here that we're we're trying to tackle. But I just want to mention something that is in your report that you just did uh, with ABTA and some of the lobbying that you're doing. I wondered if you could tell us briefly what the youth mobility scheme that you're lobbying for is.
4: Yeah, thanks very much for that. Because look, there's obviously been, I think in a lot of this podcast, quite a bit of the um, the issues which we've managed to navigate, but there is hope for the future. And this is what SBIT and ABDIT are really, really focused on at the moment. So there's two things that we're lobbying for. Um, Extending the existing UK Youth Mobility Scheme to EU countries, So the UK already has a youth mobility scheme. So this allows uh, people up to 18 to 34 to work in countries like uh, Australia, Japan, New Zealand. Um, We're looking to extend that to the EU nations, individual EU nations, and there's conversations going on at the moment around that. Um, But secondly... Um, we're seeking an enhanced uh, seasonal mobility agreement for tourism workers, full stock of whatever aged um, with the EU. Now, we think this is most likely in the renegotiation of the EU, EU UK TCA trade and cooperation agreements that will happen in 2526. Um, And and I think there's quite a lot of support. And actually, if you look at the press coverage around the SBIT report, the Times actually called this out as something that was pragmatic and made sense. Even Lord Frost, I find myself in the very bizarre (laughs) situation of agreeing with Lord Frost that actually just after he resigned in one of his first speeches, he said that they made an error in not actually having more mobility provisions within the TCA. And so I'm hopeful that... Um, either with this current government or future governments, that they will look at better mobility and particularly youth mobility scheme. Uh, Rich,
3: yeah, I would say if, if people are you know looking for jobs this winter, there's also in each of the resorts there are Facebook groups uh, set up just you know by barman and by whoever else, and they set set them up each year, you know, looking for staff recruitment, d'Isere, you know, 24, 20, you know, 23, 24, or, or what have you. You know, you just got to do a little search on the internet, on these Facebook groups, and all the local um, employers, all the local hotels, bars, restaurants, etc. They post their jobs on there, and some of these local uh, employers are large hotel groups that have admin departments and HR departments and can uh, handle um, visa applications. They're they're employing third-party nationals from other countries that aren't in the EU. Um, So I'd I'd say not to take (laughs) applications away from the fine people in this podcast, but there are some alternatives out there as well.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, that is really good. I like the idea that we can uh, finish off on a positive note, but I don't want to kind of uh, diminish uh, the conversation we've had here. Uh, you know, doing a ski season is a tremendous experience. There might be fewer jobs out there. But that just means if you want to do one, listener, or if you know someone who wants to do one, make sure that you get as many qualifications or skills as you can, and put in a high-quality application. So people like uh, Steph and Jenny will, uh, you know, take you to the next uh, stage and to move on. Overall, very interesting conversation, and hopefully, listener, you found it uh, interesting uh, as well. Please do let me know what you think about the show. I enjoy all feedback about about it uh, you can uh, contact me via social at ski podcast or email the ski podcast at gmail.com we also had a, a couple of contributions uh, via buymeacoffee.com voice the ski podcast richard bonder bought me uh, coffee the other day he also said really enjoying the podcast bucket list now overflowing uh, episode 200 beckons i don't think that's going to happen for another year or so, uh, but I will be thinking about it. And Doug uh, also bought me a coffee. That's kind of him. A couple of comments from uh, the Snowheads uh, site. Richard Sideways uh, really enjoyed episode 178. He'd never thought of Bosnia as a winter destination before. And he liked the Viking as well. Uh, Robin uh, liked the Bosnia one. Uh, And he also called uh, Mike Richards... The most travelled Welsh skier of all time, which I think he surely uh, is. And he will definitely be on the podcast again talking about uh, some of the other destinations he's been to. Now, uh, there are over, well, there's 180 episodes of the uh, ski podcast now to catch up with. I had a quick look and 126 were listened to in the last week. I see in analytics, most people are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But you can do it on your smart speaker as well. I tried that the other day. And I should let you know, uh, listeners, that uh, we now have stickers back in stock. Uh, so if you want a sticker for your uh, helmet or your skis or your mountain bike or, or anything else like that, uh, just let me know. You Send me an email and I'll send them out to you. Now, you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at The Ski Podcast. But for now, I'd like to thank Les trois for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today. Jenny, uh, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's been brilliant.
0: Uh, Steph, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Ian.
0: Been a pleasure. Uh, Rich, thanks for joining us from France. Thanks, Ian. And Charlie, really informative. Uh, uh, Great to have you on the show and keep
4: doing all the great work you're doing with ESPIT. Thank you very much. And hopefully it's not another 172 episodes before I'll come back on next time.
0: (laughs) Well, hopefully you'll be telling us that, uh, yeah, all British people can go and work over in the Alps. Uh, Final listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code Podcast, or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.